You're listening to the Story Centric Podcast. Welcome to episode 11 of the Story Centric Podcast. That is right, we are in it for the long haul. I am your host, Andrew Buckley. This week, we're picking up on the second part of the conversation with best-selling author Mary Robinette Coal. Man, I had so much fun with this conversation. We covered everything from knights fighting snails to AI and the ethical use of technology and the importance of education and all kinds of other stuff. I hope you enjoy as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. I don't want to get into it. I really do. But first, we have to have a quick word from our sponsor. Sink yourself into the intriguing and mysterious world of Renaissance Venice. From Nancy McConnell comes Into the Lion's Mouth, a page-turning adventure set in the enchanting canals of old Venice. Follow Nico as he navigates the lowest and the highest social circles in the city of Bridges. Can he change his path from a lowly orphan to a prosperous merchant without losing his life along the way? Described as a middle-grade adventure inside a love letter to Venice, this novel will transport you to another time and place where it's possible to transcend your destiny and touch greatness. Into the Lion's Mouth is available wherever books are sold. Please support your local independent bookstores. All right, let's get to the show. Introducing, or rather reintroducing, Mary Robinette Kual. All right, so you span different genres. Uh, you write in a few different areas. Like, do you have a favorite? I know you do tend to default uh, a little bit more to sci-fi. Now, uh, so my favorite is the one that I'm not doing right now, always. Okay. <laughs> it's oh, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Oh my goodness. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, so I started with uh, historical fantasy. Like uh, my glamorous histories is Jane Austen with magic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, did Ghost Talkers, which is World War One with ghosts, uh, and then transitioned over to um, science fiction with Calculating Stars uh, and the the Lady Astronaut series, and then the spare, most recently the Spare Man. My short fiction is all over the map. Um, I'm working on a short story right now that's uh, fantasy set in uh, 14th century uh, Britain. Um, it's you know the 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 giant snail the, the the knights fighting snails that are in 14th century manuscript marginalia. No. Oh, okay. So it's this whole thing. It started in France, actually. So I should maybe set it in France, but that requires more research than I want to do. Um, so France, uh, but but it went all over Europe, where the monks doing like these, you know, manuscripts, religious texts, medical historical documents, whatever, it would just do like little snails and look, Google it when we're done. Um, I'm going to. Sna- or, or now either, uh, Knights Fighting Snails. And so I was like, what if, and, and, and it happened for about a hundred years and then it went out of fashion again. And so I'm like, well, what if the reason that they were doing that is because there was actually a giant snail infestation? Why did they do it? No one knows. They were oh. bored. And then people were like, that's hilarious. I'm going to do that, too, I think is basically what happened. Huh. There is an inordinate amount of... I just it, Googled it. There's a amount. lot of knights fighting snails. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> a representation of the struggles of poor against an oppressive aristocracy is one of the yep. reasonings around it. Uh, the inevitability of death. <laughs> Stark. Yeah, there's so many, so many different things, and I, I think, I think much like writing, this is somebody was like, this is fun, and uh, and then, yes. and then people look at it and go, well, obviously the reason that the writer included a blue rose is because they were concerned with the inevitability of death and man's <laughs> inhumanity to man, as represented by the color of blue. <laughs> and, and like, it's like no. No, it was just I was in a coffee shop when I was writing and there was a blue rose on the table. And so I just stuck it in. That's but again, that's people interpreting and getting something else out of storytelling mm -hmm. that maybe you did not intend. But just because they feel something and get something out of it doesn't make it wrong. It right. means yeah. that exactly. it's that, exactly. like you said, it's that gap in between that where, the, yeah. you know, the reader meets writer. It's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It? One of my favorite things, uh, the the um, and I'm going to totally break this technique for myself. But uh, when someone comes up to me and says, why did you do, you know, such and such? And it's like a thing I have no first of all, no memory of doing. And second, it's clear that they are applying, you know, like putting a ton of uh, emphasis on this thing. I will look at them very earnestly. I'm like, why do you think I did? As <laughs> if there is a secret. And then. Whatever comes out of their mouth next, I will say, I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I get that with the young adults or the middle grade stuff, because I'll have kids write to me who are like, I really related to this character. This character's this characterization really got me through this difficult time. I'm like, man, I, I thought it was a funny character that turned into a demon. I had no idea that, you yeah. know, that it has that kind of impact. But it is, it is kind of the magic the magic behind storytelling, I suppose, that you can make those yeah. leaps and connections. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, ultimately why we're writing is to connect to people. Mm -hmm. And it's an asynchronous experience. And it's it's a rare gift when we get to actually hear about that connection as a, as a writer. You know, coming out of live theater, I could tell immediately whether or not things were, were working. And as a writer, it's, you know, I hear about things sometimes years after I wrote them. Yeah, I guess it's a lot of unknown. Mm -hmm. um, so your grasp on uh, critique, I really like. I read some of your articles where you critique different uh, works. Uh, I read one recently that was um, of Andy Weir's latest, uh, Project Hail Mary. Uh, Project Hail Mary. Yeah, and you had a term in, I wrote it down somewhere, uh, refrigerator logic. I'd never heard the term refrigerator logic before, but I thought it was such a great term. Can you explain what that is? And then we can talk about that critique because it was cool. Yeah, um, so that is something that I learned from a screenwriter, uh, Margaret Dunlap. And refrigerator logic is that if you go to see a movie um, or a TV show and you don't notice any problems with the logic in it until you stand up at the end and go to the refrigerator then you're fine because everybody enjoyed the ride. It's like refrigerator logic. It lasts and the logic will hold until they get to the refrigerator. But in writing, you don't have that same luxury because there are so many refrigerator breaks. Right. That makes sense. When I saw uh, Chris uh, Nolan's uh, Tenet in theaters, I thought, wow, this is just mind blowing. Until I went away afterwards and was like, that ending Hang on. made no sense whatsoever. No. Was, yeah, same. Was like, just, I was like, this yeah. makes no, no goddamn sense. Well, the the time travel, or calling it time travel is wrong, but the reverse side of it kind of makes sense. But then everything getting tied together with this one rod that solves all the problems. I'm like, that doesn't 
fit no. at all. No. But it, it, in the moment, I was like, wow, this is just a magical soundscape of beautiful cinematography. And I told us, and the same thing with Jordan Peele's Us, I had the same thing where I saw it, I was like, wow, that is twisted and crazy. And then went home afterwards, I was like, where did they get all the scissors and gloves and suits from? Like, did they order on Amazon? Or that doesn't make any any logical How sense. But you're, yeah. but you're right. With writing, it's different. You have much more time to yeah. digest and so many more visits to the refrigerator. You don't get that option. So yeah. I know with Hail Mary, you had, um, especially writing from a science uh, science fiction and space exploration background, I could see where you're absolutely coming from with it in that um, there were things like checklists that were simply not, like checklists solved, like, I'm still mad problems. about checklists. <laughs> I, I, can, I imagine you are. I could tell from the writing that you're upset about it. Yeah. Uh, well, and like I, I, I've met Andy. I met him after I wrote this. And I was like, and it was like two or three weeks after it had come out. And I'm like, oh, no. And he was he didn't mention it at all. Neither did I. But he was so nice. He's like such a, such a good guy. And and the thing is, it's like that book is a lot of fun. And um, and and it's going to make uh, you know, it'll probably get optioned and it'll make a really fun movie. But two things can be true. <laughs> like, all of that can be true. And I can be deeply annoyed about the lack of checklists. Mm-hmm. Entirely accurate. Um, it's, I, I did really enjoy that book, but I listened to the audiobook because I was really busy at the time. And the audiobook mm-hmm. was really, really well done because all of, um, not, that's a spoiler, but all the aliens' uh, vocalizations were done really well in the audiobook. Ooh. Oh, I bet. Oh, my goodness. That's such an interesting challenge for the audiobook narrator. And I never even thought about it because, I mean, normally I read Andy. I, like, I, I've also met Andy a couple of times and I, I've emailed him a few times. He absolutely regrets giving me his email address. There's no doubt about it because I'm constantly irritating him about things. Uh, but, yeah, it's such an interesting thing because I, I can't imagine. I keep meaning to pick up a copy to see how it's actually written in the book compared to how it was vocalized in the audio in the audiobook because it's very very different and they got to take liberties with it it's yeah. having different tones for for the alien's voice and everything so it was very yeah. interesting um, no they talk about the different time. tones but it's not it, it's not specifically represented on the page just as a tangent jumping off of audiobook experience versus uh, print experience there are two books that that I'm like I need to read it both two books more than that but uh two immediately come to mind that i'm like oh i need to read it both ways one is uh babel by rf kuang mm-hmm. and in that the magic system it's secondary it's um alternate history and there's a magic system that's based on translation that the the power the 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 driver comes from uh con- from the things that are lost when you translate from one word to another so you know the the, the nuances that are lost mm-hmm. and and so in the audiobook, in the print book, there are footnotes where they'll, they'll say, you know, uh, you know, give you some more detail about, uh, about something, or they'll, they'll have it written out phonetically in the text. And then in the footnote, they'll have the Chinese characters. And um, in the audiobook, all of the footnotes, or many of the footnotes were read by native speakers. So you right. were hearing exactly the way it was supposed to be said. That's and, interesting. And it was... It was really, really cool because that's not, you know, like if I normally I would see a string of Arabic text or a string of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Chinese characters and I'd be like, oh, OK, that's foreign language. Um, but I wouldn't be able to form any sounds in my head. I wouldn't have any experience of what that sounded like. And in the audiobook, I 
absolutely know exactly what it sounds like. And when you've got a character who can't pronounce it versus one who can, you can, you know, you know, you, you really hear the difference. Um, it's, it's so interesting. I, I, I didn't listen to audiobooks until five years ago, thereabouts, and only because I read very quickly and mm-hmm. listening to I couldn't figure out why I couldn't listen to audiobooks. Every time I listen to it, I'm like, this is so boring and it shouldn't be. And I just had to notch up the speed a little bit. I just found the the, re, the narrative read is always was always too slow for me. So if I can notch up the speed a little bit, it absolutely works. But now I'm I'm listening to audiobooks of books I've read because it's such a different experience mm-hmm. listening to it read to me. I mean, as somebody who records audiobooks, I, I assume you're more than aware of this, but it's so different. So I, I've recently listened to um, uh, Scott Lynch's Lies of Locke Lamara because it's such a different experience listening to all the voice work that goes on in that yeah. book. And with Patrick uh, Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicles, I listened to both the audiobooks for that. And I read both those books twice in the past. And now I've listened to the audiobook and it's a different experience again. It's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And the the narrator, you know, the narrator can, can bring... Uh, bring things out um the one of the other books that i was thinking about is um uh gideon the ninth uh and then the sequel to get which is like that it's just a fantastic audiobook the narrator is so good uh moira quirk is the narrator the author is um oh my goodness tamsin muir and this but the second book i had heard a lot of people say that they had found it very confusing um and I was like, I'm listening to it and I don't understand why anyone is finding it super confusing. And then realized that I was getting information because of the narrator that the, the readers on the page were not getting. And so I was actually, I think, experiencing it more the way the author intended because um, the, the information that I was getting, I think, uh, should have been clear to the reader based on cadence and sentence structure about who was speaking at some, some specific points, but it was also supposed to be, uh, you know, th- there to be some question about it. And so, um, so I was, it was super easy for me to understand what was happening. Very clear when the, when the twist came, I still got the gut punch that everybody else got, but I didn't have the confusion leading up to that gut punch. Uh, and so it's, to me, it's, it's like the um, the additional layer of the the narrator is uh, is really fun. I have to be doing something when I'm listening to audiobooks. With yeah, me hands. too. I, I can't just sit and listen to an audiobook. I listen to it in our drive or bike ride or run. I I always listen to audiobooks instead of yeah. music. But I listen to them at normal speed. I can't. The the speeding them up is just. I don't want to listen to chipmunks. It's not chipmunky. <laughs> your your brain naturally actually <laughs> your brain naturally switches because I when somebody gets into my car and the audiobook starts right away, they're like, "What are you listening to?" But to me, it sounds normal because I've listened to it and you got used to it, and your brain processes yeah. faster if you speed something up. But as speaking to, I guess, a, an, an audio narr- audiobook narrator, I, it, it might be insulting to say that I speed up. No, no, it's <laughs> it's. Um... Like we are, we are taught to slow down when we're narrating. From the twisted minds of comic book writer George McHale and novelist Andrew Buckley and beautifully illustrated by award-winning artists Rags Morales and Haley Renee Brown, Fantasy Quest will take you to places you only thought you visited before. 
The Kickstarter campaign for the Fantasy Quest comic book is now live, and we need your support. This isn't your ordinary comic book. Join Oz and Wonderland in the midst of a war where a stranger from a distant planet arrives, completely unaware of the chaos that awaits him. With the help of a mute flying monkey, survivalist Christopher Robin, and his loyal yet dim-witted pet bear, our mysterious hero embarks on a quest to save his own world. The stakes are high, and he must find the Firestone at any cost. But beware, beloved characters will not be spared. Murderous twins, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, a bloodthirsty Bambi, a depressed Merlin, and the bumbling Scarecrow are just a few of the surprises waiting for you in Fantasy Quest. Remember when Bambi's mother got shot? Well, get ready for even more startling additions to your Disney-fueled childhood trauma. The first issue is fully complete and you have the chance to be a part of this incredible project with tons of rewards up for grabs. Head over to kickstarter.com and search for Fantasy Quest or simply click the link in the podcast episode description to join us on this wonderfully twisted journey. Get ready for Fantasy Quest, the comic book that will redefine your idea of adventure. Don't wait. Join us today. So my uh, my journey into audiobooks was uh, I think started in college when um, you know I say I was an art major but I had a minor in theater and speech and we had to take a radio class uh, back in the days when um, you were actually still literally spice splicing literal tape hmm. and uh, so I took that and then I also took a class on character voices and just loved audio theater. Uh, we used to listen to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the uh, the radio show. The radio show. <laughs> yeah, um, on our local uh, local um, NPR station, and uh, and so we would, you know, it was some of my early memories are sitting around with my parents and listening to around the radio. I'm not like I'm 54. I'm not like 75 or 80, but. Um, but we would we would in fact listen. My parents grew up listening to the radio, so it was completely natural. I didn't know any different, didn't, and loved Hitchhiker's Guide. And uh, so I did that. And then when um, then with theater, I started do, working with a company called uh, Willamette Radio Workshop. And we were doing radio theater, uh, live radio theater, like on the air live, which was dynamic. Um, and then. Uh, also was reviewing audiobooks and hit a point when I was starting to initially break into writing where my training coming out of the arts with a mom who was an arts administrator was um, that you could figure out a way to monetize things. And so I w was looking at that and also the other piece uh, that I had learned as a very important piece of being an artist um, is that you need to diversify your income stream. So I had these skills and was was looking at um, at doing some audiobooks. Uh, so did some short stories for for people that I knew. I would just reach out and say, "Do you want a short? Do you want this recorded as a short story?" And um, did that to get some some chops, uh, some, some, a reel to, that I could use and mm -hmm. then, and then applied, met someone from uh, brilliance audio at a conference and they suggested that I audition to be a narrator. And I was like, Oh, look, there's a process for that. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. 
And turns out that if you go to most of the major audiobook publishers that someplace on their website, they will have a thing about how you apply to uh, to be a narrator. And it's, you know, they have slightly different things because different people have different house styles. But yeah, so, so I narrate uh, and I'm at a point now where I can turn down some of the things I don't want to do, but it's, uh, it's pleasant. I'm a member, of, proud, proud union mem- member of SAG-AFTRA. Audiobooks are not one of the things that are struck. Uh, we're on- I was going to say, are you on strike? Yeah. Or- <laughs> uh, I, I'm on strike from film and TV work, but, um, mm-hmm. but you don't, uh, but uh, audiobook contracts are covered under a different contract and the issues that, that the actors are having with the streaming services don't affect um, that. That's not something that's being affected. Uh, that, that has an effect on audiobooks. The mm-hmm. AI stuff, absolutely, that's going to be a problem down the line. But uh, but the those contracts are not the ones that we're looking at. Yeah, the AI issue, I think, comes up in every conversation, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's influencing, it's impacting everybody. It, whether I mean, for this podcast, I mean, I've interviewed authors and spoken word uh, artists and. Um, voice actor um, Omari Newton is, works for Marvel um, and he voices Black Panther and all the animation stuff. So he's, and he's talked talk extensively the first time I met him about the threat of AI and the, mm-hmm. how it's, it can so easily replace now. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely a weird, weird kind of world we live in where that is an option and a threat all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I can absolutely see where it gives someone who uh, has a reduced income stream options for, for being on, you know, playing on the same field as someone who has significant amounts of money. Um, I can absolutely see where it can, can open doors. Um, So, and there are, there are pieces where I'm like, you know, how, how many times has an author joked, can't someone else just finish this book for me? But it turns out we don't actually want that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but that's a good point. And that, I mean, this is tangent, tangenting a little bit, but that leveling the playing field has been constantly happening ever since, you know, self-publishing and digital publishing occurred where there used to be all these magnificent, you know, gatekeepers to getting published and becoming a writer. And then all of a sudden those gatekeepers have slowly been diminished and reduced to next to nothing where um, anybody can, you know, publish a book now which i mean on one hand is amazing and on the other hand is a real pain in the ass yeah. um like like what are your thoughts on this because it does like it like you said just span different industries it spans you know the audio industry and film industry and tv industry and everything and we can see by the current strikes of that impact but like what are your thoughts on that that leveling of the playing field of everything i'm, I'm kind of curious yeah my feeling is that this is um this is a conversation that we have been that we have every time a new technology is introduced and that the problem is not the technology it is the ethical use of it so right. when you know back with the the luddites um, the thing that the luddites were objecting to was not the introduce the introduction of uh, a new technology it was the disruption of their lifestyle because weaving so historic uh, hi, I write historical things often. Um, the the Luddites, uh, the weaving industry used to be something that happened in the home. So you had your own loom, you had your own spinning wheel, your kids were at home and they would wind bobbins for you. Uh, you know, someone, and, and so it was this high skilled labor, you were middle class, 
uh, you supported your family, you had a good income. And then they start introducing jacquard looms and they introduce weaving mills uh, that are, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these different things that suddenly drop it to a low skill thing, high danger thing, job and a job that has to be done out of the home. Uh, So you're now dealing with a job that puts children in direct risk. You're dealing with a job that means that families have to acquire childcare if they're going to go to the the um, the the factory to work and Mm -hmm. and reduction in wages. So all of those things were what they were protesting. But it got billed as people being against technology and against moving into the future. There was and I can't remember his name now, um, but there was a a factory owner who was like, oh, yeah, you know what? You guys are right. And so he built a factory town around his mill and provided childcare and uh, medical uh, assistance for his workers, um, medical care and uh, and also fair wages. Mm-hmm. And the other mill owners priced him out um, so that he was and and also asked for regulations to be put into place to shut him down. Wow. Um, and you see the same. That's essentially what is happening right now with the the actors in the union. And this isn't this is not the first time that AI, um, in some form, uh, computer stuff has has affected people's livelihoods. But it's the time mm-hmm. that we're hearing about it because it's visible. So in our industry, in in writing, spell check took out a lot of proofreader jobs. Yeah. No one objects to that. Proofreaders didn't have a voice, right? Yeah. The uh, When I was in college, computers were just coming in. And I was, you know, when I was learning to do layout, you had to like lay things out on a piece of paper. It was this whole complicated, very high skill thing. And now anybody can do it with Canva, which yeah. means that there's a lot of jobs people don't have anymore. Musician used to be a very reliable middle-class job. And then we get radio and... Now you don't, you know, being a professional musician, that's that's a difficult thing and there's not a lot of them. But with uh, with the with the introduction of AI and uh, and computer voices, um, if if an engineer, when I make a mistake in the studio, if an engineer can actually just go and fix it with with AI, that's actually great. That that would be that would be useful if I just bobble a, a single word and they can just correct it. That's actually great for both of us because I don't get paid a lot of money to go in and do a correction. Right. And but that same technology, if you can make an artificial version of my voice, could be used to take me completely out of the picture. Totally. And what will then happen is that in much you know in, uh, we see this that uh, that then. You know, the handcrafted, the the bespoke book, the the book that is read by an actual person who can make all of these decisions um, and bring all of the skills to it and the the human emotion. Um, mm-hmm. Those will become the special commodity in the same way that a, you know, ah, yes, the haute couture, the, the handwoven fabric. Uh, but there's not a lot of hand weavers. And what will happen is the same thing that happened at the beginning of the pandemic when the movie actors could no longer go to sets, all of them moved over to audiobooks, which meant that the the rank and file audiobook narrator no longer had like a lot of a lot of people saw their work go away because they went to the celebrity person. So what will wind up happening is that there will be a, a phase 
where everyone, you know, where there's a bunch of AI audiobooks. And then people were like, oh, but we could have AI or we could have David Tennant read us the story. Mm-hmm. And so you'll still have audiobooks that are read by humans, but it'll be a much smaller pool. It'll be much harder to get into. And it'll only be people who are already established. But how do you get established in an industry if there's not a way in? It's like a lot for for actors, a lot of people break in and and fill in the gaps with uh, background work. If that doesn't exist anymore, you know, it becomes it then becomes something that only people who are wealthy can afford to do because they're the only ones who can take the time to do all of the pieces that are necessary to to get into that position of privilege uh, at the end. And it's it, it is you know it and it's also ignoring one of the the things about humans is it's not it's not the skills we bring although those are you know definitely there and honed it's that each person makes different idiosyncratic choices based on the life that we have lived and so yes. it is narrowing and flattening the the range of experience that you will have as a consumer that that kind of leads nicely into the last thing I want. Well, not the last thing I want to talk about because I, I only got through like a very small fraction of my questions. Sorry, <laughs> but, I talk a lot. No, it's but it's a good no. It's a good thing. It just means I'll force you to do this again at some point. But the <laughs> the um, the educational portion that exists because we are now we now have access to all these technologies where the landscape has been flattened quite a bit. I mean, the importance of education is still very paramount in my mind as an, somebody who teaches a lot and educates a lot and teaches at colleges and, and does all this stuff. It, it's so important, but it also seems all of a sudden less important because technology is taking over doing a lot of things for us or even the expectation of what we we should know going into certain industries like film or television or writing or whatever. It doesn't seem like we need as rich a history as somebody who is educated and has, you know, been through the system quite a bit. Like, I mean, how do you feel about how just the the education has shifted and the expectation of education has shifted um, now versus, you know, 10, 20 years ago? So I I should clarify that while I talk about um, art education, minor in theater and speech, that that is a pattern of speech that I, I learned to present myself as because I do not have a degree. I didn't finish my college degree. Me neither. So I think that like those experiences are like fundamentally shaped me. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also had a, I I also think that that's not the only way to acquire, uh, has never been the only way to acquire information or knowledge. And the, one of the things that I think is frustrating is, uh, is this dichotomy where, um, where, where people are opposed to the elite, you know, the people who are educated, and also simultaneously look down on people who are blue collar, you know, who are <laughs> yeah. who have a trade. Um, so uh, we uh, we have a, a someone someone that I know uh, here who is um, who's a plumber. His degree is in philosophy, and he's a plumber because he makes very good money as a plumber. And he has a lot of time to think, but he has a really hard time finding an apprentice. Right. Even though plumbing is like one of the most lucrative jobs out there. And people's reaction to him when he says that he is a plumber 
are completely different than when he says his degree is he has a master's in philosophy. And like exactly the same person. Philip Glass, amazing composer, also a plumber. And and he like there's a, a story that I don't think is apocryphal. I believe it's a true thing that he was, you know, repairing someone's sink and they, you know, they came home while he was there and he crawls out from under the sink and they're like, oh, my God, you're Philip Glass. Why are you fixing my sink? <laughs> and he's like, because this is how I pay my bills. Um, and also, I'm billing you by the hour. Do you really want to talk about my music right now? <laughs> I don't I don't know if he actually said that last part, but that's that's internally. That's my my headcanon for it. Um, it's probably accurate. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that he's actually a, a, a nice guy, but um very pragmatic. Uh, but so so in terms of, of writing, um, I think that it's it's interesting because the people that I know that came out of a creative writing degree often will come wander over into science fiction and fantasy. And they'll be like, why do you all talk so much about technique? I didn't learn any of these things. We hear about this all the time on writing excuses. I didn't learn any of this in my creative writing degree program. And the, the those programs not all of them. I want to be very clear. There's some good mm-hmm. programs out there. Stone Coast. There's a couple of others. Uh, but a lot of them are just like, you just have to feel it. And and there is there's this protection of uh, like a, a hazing thing that will happen. It's a different form of gatekeeping. And um, and so I think that education as a form of gatekeeping is a really crappy idea. Um, and it's something that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that education is a way of avoiding reinventing the wheel and getting a support structure is a fantastic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's exciting that there's multiple ways to get that now. I, I like that people are more open to hiring people or giving people work when they don't have that degree behind them. Because I was yeah. I was one of those people. I mean, that's I never had a degree, but I worked in, you know, in content strategy for like 15 years. So any job that I would apply for when I used to work regular nine to fives, they'd all ask for a degree in marketing or business. And I would always say, I do, I don't have this. I said, but I do have this much experience and I've done this much work. And this is how, you know, I've proven myself over the years. That should hold the same weight. It should hold the same weight. It should hold the same weight, but also you're operating from a place of privilege. That's very true. You know, um, I, uh, one of my, my mom was, it always really, really bothered her that I did not have a degree. Um, because she didn't get her degree and she would get up to vice president of more than one organization. And then whoever was president would leave and she has been there for a decade and they do a candidate search. She's the interim director, but they never offer her the the, the job because all of their applica- all of the job requirements that they put out say that you have to have a master's. Crazy. I cannot teach at a college. I can't get a job at a university teaching writing. Um, I, I've had people approach me about being an adjunct. Um, and I explain, I don't have a degree. And the person that contacts me is always like, oh, that's fine, but I am going to have to run this past my department. And then I never hear from them again. That's so um, crazy considering, well, I mean, me knowing you that, that like you'd be the perfect university professor for writing. That'd be such an exciting class, but I, I have the same problem. I only teach at private career colleges because I can. I I'm not able to teach at a for the exact same reasons. I can't teach at a public university. The system doesn't yeah. allow it. Yeah, which is fine. It yeah. is what it is. Yeah, and and 
you know, it's frustrating, but also I've found lots of ways around it. I have a Patreon. I mm -hmm. have a Thinkific, you know, I, I teach, I've got new asynchronous classes. We do writing excuses. We do workshops. Um, but always the, the problem that we're trying to balance is making sure that the teachers are paid a fair wage yeah. and that it is accessible to students who do not have the kind of support network that I had. Well, that, I mean, that is also part of it. I mean, you want to kind of reach the people who, you know, who didn't have, giving people the opportunity that you didn't have when you were getting into it. I mean, from our yeah. current standpoint, we know so much more now than what we knew when we started. Yeah. I mean, I remember sitting there when I was first published being like, I don't know what to do now. Like, I, I don't know what, what to do next. And if I'd known now, then what I know now, man, it would have been so different. So anything oh, yeah. that I teach is always from a, a standpoint of, like, I'm simply helping you get out of your own way. Like, yeah. I'm teaching yeah. you the things that, I wish I'd known when I was in your position and that seems to Same. work fairly well. Right. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I've, I mean, I didn't get to ask you about your dozen manual typewriters you have around your house and you know, a uh, hundred other things I had on my list, but uh, I've, I've taken up so too much of your time as it is. Mary Robinette, I really appreciate it. Um, I've absolutely missed you over the last four years. So this is yeah, really nice to chat with you again. This was a delight. We should uh, we should do this more often, and 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 sometimes we should try this without an audience. We should try without recording it sometimes. I'm sure that would be also interesting. But yes, we absolutely <laughs> should. Although I love all of your listeners, and I'm happy to have spent some time with them. And that is the show. I hope you guys learned something from the wonderful mind of Mary Robinette. And I encourage you to check out her books if you never have before. The Lady Astronaut Duology is absolutely awesome. So be sure to pick that up from your local bookstore. Next week, we'll be back with a whole new episode featuring a live podcast recording from Penticon, the Penticton Comic Con in British Columbia. So you want to check that out. It's an interesting little roundtable discussion about all things story. Until next time. Well, I'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.